0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector
1: Podcast. I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be
0: speaking to the Chief Executive of Maudsley Charity to find out how they decide where to focus their efforts and resources in the face of insurmountable need. It's a fascinating look behind the scenes at the decisions that a specialised grantmaker has to make every day in the current climate. And later in Charity Changed My Life, we'll hear how Endometriosis UK helped one person in her battle to get and then deal with her diagnosis.
1: Now let's get straight on with our main feature. Do you ever feel that the list of problems your organisation is trying to solve is so long that you don't know where to focus your efforts? Well, if so, you're definitely not alone, and we hope it will be useful for you to hear from our guest today about how she tackled a big strategic shift and worked out where to prioritise the charity's resources. Rebecca Gray is the Chief Executive of Maudsley Charity, a mental health grant-making charity in South East London. In the seven years she's been at Maudsley, the charity has moved from being embedded in the local NHS Trust to becoming an independent organisation with a new strategy to boot. Hello, Rebecca.
2: Hi, nice to be
1: here. Well, great to have you. So just to open, could you please tell us about Maudsley Charity's journey and specifically why you moved from funding general mental health services and research to something a bit more targeted?
2: Yeah, it's been an interesting journey anyway. The Morsi Charity is a combination of an NHS charity. So we're the Link charity for South London, the Morsi NHS Foundation Trust. But we also have this very unusual, unrestricted endowment, which means that we have the freedom to really fund anything which broadly benefits NHS patients. They don't have to be in South East London, it doesn't even have to, within our objects, relate to mental health, which is, as I'll come to, too much freedom, I think probably. Our focus is improving the lives of people who experience mental illness. Primarily we're funding grants in NHS improvement, in research that relates to improved care and support, but we also support voluntary sector organisations in South East London and nationally. The journey, when I arrived and we went through a big shift moving towards becoming an independent organisation, but the grant giving at that stage, it was structured along programmes which were defined by the value of grants. So you could apply for small level grants, mainly orientated towards community and voluntary sector organisations or larger grants orientated towards research or improvement programmes. And There was some brilliant work funded throughout that entire period. I mean, the lesson of today is that almost nothing is a bad idea. There is almost always really great stuff to fund and that's the problem. But we were constantly looking and making choices between apples and oranges, to use Mm. the kind of cliched phrase. We were not able to develop the expertise within our small organization to make the best choices. And we couldn't stand back and understand both what impact we were making which is to some extent a, a selfish aim, you know, that that kind of self understanding of impact, but more importantly, focus impact and enhance and, and accelerate it in the way that we were funding at that point, making, you know, being able, we were funding essentially anything that operated within mental health services. So we started, particularly when we had a new board, we had a new board, which we appointed in 2018 from a really wide variety of backgrounds, mostly not in mental health. And it gave us the freedom to say, right, okay, what's going to make the biggest difference? How are we going to focus our resources, given not only the unending need, but the unending possibilities and opportunities we have to make a difference, to really kind of focus down and and, and shift what we were doing. Mm. So that was the, the starting point for deciding that we wanted to fund across uh, thematic strategic programs rather than be a very general fund for those working in mental health
0: i think that's absolutely fascinating and a very intentional choice to be strategic and to be intentional but i imagine that also throws up quite a number of challenges particularly at a time when as you say we know that the need of the service users is you know it's extortionate yeah. particularly among young people in today's climate so could you tell us a little bit about the kind of challenges that you face now as a grant maker when choosing exactly where and how you were going to spend that money and I guess in a way make some sort of value judgment on where that need is greatest. Absolutely.
2: So first of all, it was about lots and lots of conversations. So being very open and transparent that that was the direction we were going in so that stakeholders could play a part in those decisions and influence the direction of travel. And that characterised the process from very, very, very early on. I suppose what we wanted to do was think about three things, and I think this would be common in other areas, not just in mental health care. We were looking at need, Mm -hmm. and as you say, need is absolutely astonishing, particularly, I mean, we were making these decisions prior to uh, the pandemic, but has accelerated much further since. So where is their need? Where is the challenge? And there's a phrase we use quite a lot, which is who is most failed. And by that, we don't just mean who is most failed by services, but by society, by broader challenges. So we start with need, but then we were laying on top of that, where is the greatest potential for for change? So that was thinking about our local partners, national partners, and the assets and and capabilities that they have. We are very much place-based, but with an ambition for national and potentially international impact. So, we are based on the site of the Morsley Hospital, but we're also based on the site of the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience, which is part of King's College London. And between them, they are you know, incredibly world leading institutions in terms of pioneering change in mental health care and in a place with an incredibly diverse and thriving voluntary community sector. So we were looking also at what's the potential locally, so who might we fund, not only to improve the lives of people in South East London, but which will then have an impact potentially on the wider NHS and beyond. And then the third point was where can our kind of funding make the most difference? So if you take the example of the kind of research we fund, we tend to fund at the level I don't want to get too technical, but feasibility studies, pilot studies, the studies which may then develop adequate evidence for research teams to apply to a really large funder like the Wellcome Trust or to the National Institute of Health Research or the MRC. So we play a particular role in supporting teams who've got a really great idea to develop that research to the next stage. So we were looking at the kinds of funding we were able to provide and also the way we work, which is very much connecting people, creating collaborations, supporting partnerships. So we were looking at From all those three lenses. It wasn't just a question of who's most in need. If we were doing that, I think it would have been impossible because we would have been making value judgments about whether early intervention in children's services or dementia services were more important and we certainly wouldn't want to do that. So we spent absolutely ages interviewing people, looking at data, looking at what we'd funded in the past that we felt was really the most more effective kind of grants that we would given in the past and came up with eight or nine areas that we thought had real potential. And at that point, I genuinely think we could have picked any of those, and we would have done. We could have done really, really good work. And there was a point at which I think we were almost torturing ourselves with which direction to go. And the chair of our board at the time kept saying, you can't make a wrong call here. You've done enough work that any of these areas would will do good in the world, really, really powerful good in the world. So we then kind of spent more time assessing what the options were, and we, we came up with two first thematic programmes. The first one, which is a programme called Living Well with Psychosis, is about, as you might expect, supporting people who have an experience of a psychotic illness like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or, or bipolar disorder to get what they need. And that might be the right kind of treatment. It might be more personalised care. It might be more culturally appropriate care. It might be support to get opportunities for education and employment. And part of the reason we picked that was because Southeast London has some of the highest rates of psychosis, uh, not only in the UK, but in Europe. Very, very high concentrations. Um, it ties very specifically to broader inequity. There's a, a strong element of race inequity and links to social deprivation and experience of trauma in terms of what might drive the levels of psychosis area. And we're very interested in understanding and playing into reducing inequity in the way that we work. But also we were working with institutions that had a phenomenal track record of work in developing care for people with psychosis and understanding what's going on. So really phenomenal research. And then I suppose the third element of that was who else is funding? Who else is working in this area? And I think that's a really crucial question for any organisation, whether they are grant funding or whether they're deciding which area they're going to provide services or campaign in. Are we going to duplicate what others are doing? Are we really going to do something that could be really quite fill a gap? And psychosis is not an area that is well invested in, in terms of other grant funders. So we were looking at serving a population that is highly stigmatised, experiences high levels of inequity, really not great outcomes in all sorts of levels, And, you know, multiple levels of discrimination and equity piled on and not that many people really paying very close attention or working in the area. So that felt like absolutely the perfect kind of spot for us. And then the second theme, which we haven't yet launched, but is in the final design stages, is around young people. It's around early intervention for young people who, the way we're describing this at the moment, but it will become snappier, is young people who are most at risk of developing severe mental illness, but least likely to get care in the way and the time and the place that they need it. So a real focus on people from marginalised communities and experiencing all sorts of adverse experiences. Um, and that built on a big commitment we'd made to fund a new integrated care and research centre on the Maudsley site called the Pairs Maudsley Centre for Children and Young People, which will open next year. And we'd invested 10 million into that centre. So that really kind of we were building on uh, an ongoing commitment to young people's mental health. Um, and we wanted to do something that was very a little bit more upstream. So we're not in the public health prevention mm-hmm. space, but we are in very, you know, the space of very early intervention and trying to reduce the need for those young people as they grow into adulthood to, to, to need to rely on mental health services.
1: And is that second component around young people? Is that specifically for South East London, or is that part of your wider national strategy?
2: So our our wider national strategy is to some extent to invest local for national impact. Mm -hmm. So we are funding programmes which demonstrate a level of innovation and have the potential to develop learning and evidence that can be used elsewhere. So most of what we're funding is allowing people to experiment and try something new or to look at how they might scale up an idea to see if it works in a wider patch or with different groups and a bigger geography or to accelerate that development and kind of catalyse change much more quickly with the hope that not everything, but much of that work will then go on to inform what might happen at a national level or in other parts of the country. I suppose the thing that's slightly different to that is that one of the benefits of us being able to focus in a particular area is understanding how different types of money might work differently. So in our Living With Psychosis programme, when we were looking at what people with experience of psychosis and their families said they needed, there was obviously a gap there, which was about supporting the here and nows, put outside of mental health services, organisations that will help people stay engaged with a life that's beyond their mental health care. So we're developing a part up programme specifically orientated towards community and voluntary sector organisations in Southeast London, providing what will probably be core funding to organisations that are already not only supporting people who have severe mental illness but are well trusted by and that's really important because there is a real uh, it's a disproportionate number of uh, people from black communities who are impacted by psychosis and there is a lack of trust in mental health services and actually the voluntary community sector play a really important role in providing support often to people who don't necessarily have faith in statutory services. Mm. So that's why we are doing something slightly different. That's very local impact providing, trying to build the capability in that patch. Our other work is really intended to impact locally and then have a ripple effect nationally, we hope in time. It must be
0: quite an interesting position to be in where you are both investing in NHS funding and in community funding as well. And this coming at a time when we know that the National Health Service is under immense strain. Could you talk a little bit about how you kind of separate those two funding streams out? Give us some more details on that. So
2: one example would be this very specific stream, which is really about capability and core funding. That's very, very clear. And we draw very clear lines around that. A lot of our other funding, actually, we encourage messiness. We encourage partnerships. We encourage collaborations that cross over boundaries. And particularly in this, the young people's programmes, I think the focus of that will be partnerships between the NHS, community sector, often maybe local authorities that don't sit squarely in a neat place. And that's partly because for that programme, A lot of the young people won't be in contact with mental health services at all already. They're missed. So if you're trying to find people that are missed, there's no point just looking at the young people who are already in contact with health services. And that requires different kinds of collaboration. So we actively encourage and we will say we will have a bias towards applications that cross those boundaries, that are active in considering the real lives of the people that they're trying to impact rather than how services are organised and and to say as well both of our funding programmes are heavily influenced directly by people with lived experience so particularly in how we make decisions on grants we have groups of people with experience of psychosis that review all of our grant making applications and inform our decisions and we're working with a group of young people at the moment to design our our programme. That informs the need to not be too tightly bound to who can apply for this kind of fund and who can apply for that. We're very much driving partnerships.
0: I think that's really, really interesting. And I love what you said there about the messiness of some of these applications. Something that I hear time and again from small, local, even large charities is that they find grant makers can often be quite restrictive in the things that they will fund. So it's short-term projects over a specific time plan and it's short-term. There is a great need for sort of unrestricted funding that allows them to keep their services going rather than going into specific projects. How important do you think unrestricted and flexible funding is?
2: I think it's essential, but you need to be clear that that's the purpose of the fund, so again you know that's why we are we're being really specific that there is some of this funding which is absolute to that, which is to sustain you and allow you to carry on do what you're doing and not get distracted by the need to create a, a made up project that actually takes away from your core purpose and doesn't support you and actually makes you more fragile in the long term, where we're looking at funding experimentation and innovation. I think that has to be project orientated. But what we'd hope is we can build partnerships that are pretty robust in their makeup and don't essentially drag voluntary sector organisations into a place that's really unhelpful then doesn't load too much load and responsibility on the the grant-making process for them. So I think it it really depends on the nature of the change you're trying to achieve.
1: And then thinking about Maudsley's place within the wider mental health ecosystem, have you found it difficult at any point to sort of work out where you fit and where collaboration with other entities who are working on similar areas would be
2: worthwhile or or whether it's better to sort of go out on your own? It's a really interesting question because there aren't very many funders in mental health. There are very few. There are organisations that have a mental health focus as part of their programme or have funded mental health work but it's relatively unusual. I think we've grappled with these tensions around are we local are we national what's our role in influence I think it's been a really big tension as well because it'd be really nice we'd spend all all my days going out and meeting other national organisations working mental health and feeling part of a a conversation but we've got to work out again. we, We spent a lot of time last year working up a change model and that was really really helpful because I think we need to understand where do those links actually deliver something or whether is it just organisational ego? So we're now getting to the point where we're really thinking about where does that where we where we've specialised in those programmes. What are we now getting from those programmes in terms of learning and evidence about gaps around what works and which organisations could we work with who might then take what we've developed And move it on Mm. so we're definitely starting to have conversations with some of those national professional organizations national voluntary sector organizations who have got a shared interest and but it's around something very specific yeah I think what can happen is you end up having very general nice to have conversations with peers in the sector that don't turn into anything real unless you've genuinely got a real shared ambition in a particular area so I feel like we're starting to navigate that now Mm. and you know, looking forward to a period where I think we're able to have these very targeted partnerships at a national level that will will deliver change.
1: And why do you think there is such a deficit of funders specifically focused on mental health? And do you think that's going to change in the coming
2: years? I mean, it's been interesting because we have this other, uh, it's, we have a complicated uh, set of roles, but one of our roles is to generate funding for work across our patch as well so I mentioned the Pears-Morsey Centre for Young People's Mental Health we put an initial 10 million investment into that but we were also seeking funding partners so we were be fundraising with our partners at King's College London at the same time mm. and children's mental health even at the start of that that process started seven years ago there was already quite a bit of interest emerging around children's mental health that had been for I would say you know Heads Together campaign, other organisations like Young Minds and Place to Be had had really stimulated a great deal of interest. So it wasn't a difficult place to start those conversations. But I think post-pandemic, it's very unusual for us to talk to a funder where there isn't a very strong interest. So while there aren't many completely dedicated funders it feels as though there has been quite a strong shift and I think what's been useful post-pandemic is people understanding the intersection between those mental health issues and deprivation and inequity and race race equity and so it feels like we are pushing at much more of an open door and it's great for us because we're not actively fundraising from a point of just needing the needing funds to, to run projects where we're looking for partner funders. So we're able to put our funding on the table and then say, will you join with us? And I think that's, that's a message that a lot of other grant funders, particularly if they don't specialise, they actually really value having a specialist funder as a partner because it provides some assurance. I mean, I just hope that mental health is not a trend. And in five years, we've moved on to a different set of issues because it feels as though it's recognized as as really important i think the the frightening thing is that while in the sector i think there's an increasing interest and focus on mental health in the nhs as often happens under financial pressure services are being really really harmed in terms of the lack of funding so actually need because of that will go up and up regardless Mm. of how much more attention you know we all know philanthropy and philanthropic funding is a tiny drop in the ocean really compared to tax-funded services so it can feel pretty dispiriting when you see that mix of the need going up while even if there's greater philanthropic interest
0: We've kind of come full circle there, right back to the need at the beginning. And you've given us so many helpful insights in the last 20 minutes. So to finish off, I think let's sit with that growing need. Do you have any pieces of practical advice for other charity leaders, perhaps working in funders or who could be allocating their own resources on deciding where to focus? Because I know there will be lots of organisations listening who are just stuck thinking, how do we decide where to turn our attention, our funding, and our care? How, how can we do it? <laughs> I think
2: I think give yourself time. This is all going to sound so obvious. Talk to lots of people and gather as much information as you can. And then don't forget that it's not just about need. It's about your own capabilities, skills, and potential. I think that's where you can get lost, where you, tr- you feel as though you're trying to make choices between needs and that's an almost impossible place to to be it's really thinking about where what the the discipline bit is is being realistic about what difference you can make and also how that relates to other organisations in your sector so that you're not you may have them where you can identify with them be really brilliant partnerships but you're not duplicating the work of others those things feel incredibly obvious but i wouldn't underestimate how often I think sometimes some, some of that kind of reflection about your own capabilities and potential as an organisation can sometimes get missed.
1: Great. Well, Rebecca, um, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Now we
0: move on to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. This week, we hear from 27-year-old Lydia Eccleston, whose life was turned around by the support she started receiving from Endometriosis UK five years ago. All the way from the age of puberty,
3: I was sort of fighting to find out why I didn't feel normal, why my period symptoms were different to all of my friends, my family. Um, I remember fainting um, in school, uh, bleeding excessively, having horrendous symptoms, um, and everyone just being like, sort of, what's wrong with you? You know, this isn't normal. Every time I would visit the doctors, I would be told, it is normal, and it's part of being a woman. And I started believing that it was a me problem, perhaps I couldn't handle pain like other people could. Now, what that did to my mental and emotional state was tell me that if this was part of being a woman and I had to deal with these symptoms for the rest of my life, and that's just normal, then I didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't have any social life at that point. I wasn't able to see friends and family because I was too exhausted, excessively bleeding, fainting all the time. And also, you know, my career was my everything. I'd gone to university. I'd, I'd done everything I could to pursue a career. And I felt like I was letting people at work down. I felt like my life was sort of crumbling and I was only 22 years old at this point. So I was obviously, like most people do, searching online for um, similar stories, advice, and that's when I found Endometriosis UK. Um, I found their website in their sort of advice section, and suddenly realised that um, everything I was experiencing, they were putting into the correct words, the correct way to describe it, and everything just clicked as to, this is what I've got, this is definitely me, I recognise myself in this. Because of them, I was able to get that all-important diagnosis. That diagnosis means that you get access to the support you need, but it also, on the other flip side, is somebody telling you that you definitely do have an incurable condition with very limited treatment options um, for the rest of your life. So of course I was feeling so confused at this point and for me Endometriosis UK was the first point of call that I went to. Calling them and asking what I should do for my next steps, uh, how I should manage this, also speaking to the people in the support group about how they manage that side of things and they became my support, my mental health group, community and therapists because they could get it more than anyone else could. They could understand what I was going through. Endometriosis UK has changed my life. It's enabled me to advocate for myself, build a community for my symptoms, and turn something that was a a struggle into a superpower that I can now use uh, to advocate for myself and get the support and treatment that I need.
1: That was Lydia Eccleston talking about how Endometriosis UK helped her get a life-changing diagnosis and validation that the symptoms she was experiencing were not normal. And I think that is such a great example of a charity providing a service that just changed everything for her and filling a gap in that health ecosystem in this country that would otherwise lead somebody to be constantly second-guessing themselves why am I in so much pain, perhaps never reaching a diagnosis and getting the support that she needed. If you would like your organisation to be featured in Charity Change My Life, we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who has benefited from your services submitted to our voice note mailbox. You can find the link to record your message and further guidance in the show notes to this episode, or you can drop me a line. Well, that's it for this
0: week. Next week, we'll be seeking to demystify social investment opportunities for charities and help understand
1: why they can be an appealing alternative to grant funding. Thank you to our guest, Rebecca Gray, and our producers, Inga Marsden and Nav Pal.